Happy Monday, stackers. This week will be a little unusual. As you know by now, our typical schedule for releases has us dropping actual play episodes on Mondays, but Valentine's Day fell on a Friday this year, so our normal schedule was thrown off a bit. As a result, we're going to offer three smaller Creation Corner episodes throughout the week, so I hope you'll enjoy the special content as we get back into our recording groove. One of the greatest joys that the Stack of Dice show has led to is getting to meet dedicated tabletop role-playing gamers around the world. This last week I had the opportunity to spend some time talking with Pat Eiler of Foot of the Mountain Adventures. I'll take a brief aside and say that if you need custom-made, handcrafted maps for your game, Pat is the guy to talk to. He offers lots of stuff on both his Twitter feed, at mountain underscore foot, and his Patreon page. Don't worry too much about memorizing or writing these down. I'll include them in the show notes for this episode. Again, if you're looking for beautiful, functional maps to use in your game, take a moment to look at some examples of his excellent work. Again, check out the show notes for links. Back to the theme. Pat and I had arranged to meet to discuss his growing podcast series and think through some topic areas. It was great to be able to spend some time doing this, and we had a good time. During our discussion, I was reminded of a book that I think could be supremely useful for world building and maps, so I want to share that with you in this episode, and then we're going to use it to actually draw out a place in the game world of Vardalon. My hope is that by pairing the book with a drawing, we'll be able to see how they could work together and maybe give you a means of doing something similar with your own map making and world building. To start, the book is called A Pattern Language, and it was written by Christopher Alexander and a whole gang of architects back in 1977. I'll share the link to the Amazon listing in the show notes. I was told about this book by a friend at work, and it sounded intriguing, so I decided to check it out, and it does not disappoint. The premise is probably best laid out on the book's dust jacket. In designing their environments, people always rely on certain languages, which, like the languages we speak, allow them to articulate and communicate an infinite variety of designs within a formal system, which gives them coherence. In other words, over time, as we've built things, we've assigned meaning and structure into what works best, and this book is going to try to help to define the connections between and significance of these patterns. Let me ask you this. Have you ever stumbled across a place somewhere, maybe where you live, maybe while traveling somewhere, that just felt right? Maybe it was beautiful, maybe just peaceful, or caught your eye for some reason you couldn't put your finger on. Have you ever wondered why it grabbed your attention? This book attempts to find out why, and it does so through finding out how different aspects of design work together to build pleasing public and private places. Here are some more passages from the introduction. In this book, we present one possible pattern language of the kind called for in The Timeless Way. That's a companion book. This language is extremely practical. It is a language that we have distilled from our own building and planning efforts over the last eight years. You can use it to work with your neighbors, to improve your town and neighborhood. You can use it to design a house for yourself, with your family, or to work with other people to design an office or a workshop or a public building like a school. And you can use it to guide you in the actual process of construction. The elements of this language are entities called patterns. Each pattern describes a problem which occurs over and over again in our environment. 
and then describes the core of the solution to that problem in such a way that you can use the solution a million times over without ever doing it the same way twice. The patterns are ordered, beginning with the very largest, for regions and towns, then working down through neighborhoods, clusters of buildings, buildings, rooms and alcoves, ending finally with details of construction. Each pattern is connected to certain larger patterns, which come above it in the language, and to certain smaller patterns which come below it in the language. The pattern helps to complete those larger patterns which are above it, and is itself completed by those smaller patterns which are below it. In short, no pattern is an isolated entity. Each pattern can exist in the world only to the extent that is supported by other patterns, the larger patterns in which it is embedded, the patterns of the same size that surround it, and the smaller patterns which are embedded in it. This is a fundamental view of the world. It says that when you build a thing, you cannot merely build that thing in isolation, but must also repair the world around it and within it so that the larger world at that one place becomes more coherent and more whole, and the thing which you make takes its place in the web of nature as you make it. There's much more I could have included from the introduction, but I think these selected passages get to the core of the book. It all goes to say that if you want to build a place that feels coherent and planned, you should think about the interconnectedness of these patterns, and that's what I'm going to attempt to illustrate through the course of this Creation Corner episode. I will say that given the age of the book, I have no idea if anything has come along since to refute what it lays out. I believe the authors were keenly aware of the potential of this happening, and in the introduction, they allow for the fact that they may have missed the mark on certain things or that the patterns could be subject to change. Here's one last passage to that effect. You see, then, that the patterns are very much alive and evolving. In fact, if you like, each pattern may be looked upon as a hypothesis, like one of the hypotheses of science. In this sense, each pattern represents our current best guess as to what arrangement of the physical environment will work to solve the problem presented. The work in this book is heavily salted with flexibility, so feel free to change things as you feel it makes sense and it works within your world design. The book shares 253 distinct patterns and arranges them from the massive independent region down to the makeup of towns and countryside, to cities, to sacred sites and access to water, and so on all the way down to placement of pedestrian streets and the composition of buildings. It's remarkably thorough, but laid out in a modular way that will become clear as we go through our exercise. Before we get started, I want to set up the basic area we'll be concentrating on in this episode. As I thought about what to include, what we were going to use as our example in Vardalon, I thought Arden might make for a convenient place to map. Granted, it was a long time ago, but we spent some considerable time in the little town, and I have in my mind a good starting point for its appearance, a large elevated promontory called the Rock that rises above where two rivers flow together. This provides easy access to water, plus a defensible location, and it's small, so it should fit into this type of episode for the time that I've allotted for it. A couple years ago, in my green notebook that basically served as a repository for notes as I did the preliminary work for the Stack of Dice show. I sketched a rough idea of the town of Arden on the first page, and we'll share that on Twitter and Instagram, but I think Arden could be so much more. So here we are. 
Once we're done with our work today, we'll share the file through a link in the show notes to the more complete pattern language-based design and see if you notice a difference. So I have some paper, I have a pencil, I have my book, and I'm ready to go. At this point, I'm going to be moving away from my scripted information, and we're just going to let things flow, so we'll see where this exercise takes us. And just to show how this book works and how it interconnects its patterns, we'll start with country towns. That's one of the patterns. Is uh, Section number six is country towns, so we'll start there, and then as we go, we'll get a flow of the book and also maybe how we could use this in your world. Section 6, Country Towns, begins with, This pattern forms the backbone of the distribution of towns, that's Section 2, which requires that scores of smaller country towns support the larger towns and cities of the region. So the first thing I'm taking from this is that every town needs to have a purpose. It's not just a plot point. It's not just a thing that you plunk down on a map to fill some empty space. A town exists to support larger towns and cities in the region. So I think that's an important first lesson to take from this. Now each section has a little blurb at the beginning to give a sense of what it's about, and then some bold text that is kind of like a a topical heading for the section. I'll read those. And then in between the bold at the beginning and the bold at the end of a section, there's a lot of supporting information that I guess bolsters what they're saying this pattern is based on. So I'm going to leave a lot of that connecting information out of the readings here for the sake of time and also uh, not to read the entire book. Basically, under country towns, it says the big city is a magnet. It is terribly hard for small towns to stay alive and healthy in the face of central urban growth. So what I'm taking from that is little towns are probably not going to be located very close to larger cities. And in this case, Arden, in my planning, is fairly remote to the larger city of Flinmore to the north. So we're good there. And then the bold section at the end of this country towns topic says, preserve country towns where they exist and encourage the growth of new self-contained towns with populations between 500 and 10,000 entirely surrounded by open countryside and at least 10 miles from neighboring towns. Make it the region's collective concern to give each town the wherewithal it needs to build a base of local industry so that these towns are not dormitories for people who work in other places, but real towns able to sustain the whole of life. There's a lot of good in that. Man, that's that's pretty cool. So they give you approximate population sizes, 500 to 10,000, Approximate spacing between towns, about 10 miles between neighboring towns. And then each town needs to have a base of local industry. So you wouldn't necessarily have two farming towns side by side. You might have a farming town and then 10 miles away you might have, say, um, a town that that focuses on repairing farming implements. So one town benefits from the other in order to do its work, and maybe the next town over has more livestock. So instead of agriculture, they're more into livestock and raising animals. So one town sells its animals to farmers. Farmers need repair of their tools, their implements. And then that third town, the the repair town, needs stuff from both of the other towns. So there's a, a lively trade that is generated between these three towns. So I'm seeing a lot of good in this. Uh, And it's easy to build up a whole region very quickly using this approach. And then at the end of each of these topics, 
is a way f- uh, a way of connecting it both to the patterns above it in size and below it in size. And so this one says, treat each of these small towns as a political community with full provision for all the stages of human life. And then connecting to country towns, it says community of 7,000 and life cycle. And then it says, treat the belt of open country which surrounds the town as farmland, which belongs to the people and can be freely used by them. And with that, it links to the larger pattern, the countryside. So we're going to use that as a starting point. And like I said, in my planning for Arden, it is remote. It's not terribly close to other towns of its size, but I think I've left it open enough that there would be plenty of room for adding in little towns here and there throughout the countryside. Towns may be of lesser significance, but obviously when you're building an interconnected network of towns, uh, they would be mutually supporting. So I think there's some good in this. All right, let's go on to the next thing. At the beginning of the book, there's a summary of the language that lays out all 253 patterns. Again, it's in size order from largest down to smallest. Country towns is number six. Community of 7,000 is number 12. So we're going to flip over to number 12 then, community of 7,000. I certainly don't see Arden as having 7,000 inhabitants, but we'll see what this has to say, and maybe we can find ways to use that. So this section says the mosaic of subcultures is made up of a great number of large and small self-governing communities and neighborhoods. Community of 7,000 helps define the structure of the large communities. The bold section says individuals have no effective voice in any community of more than 5,000 to 10,000 persons. And at the end, the bold footnote says decentralized city governments in a way that gives local control to communities of 5,000 to 10,000 persons. As nearly as possible, use natural geographic and historical boundaries to mark these communities. Give each community the power to initiate, decide, and execute the affairs that concern it closely. Land use, housing, maintenance, streets, parks, police, schooling, welfare, neighborhood services. So I think we have done a lot of that already. Arden has its mayor, that's Chiswick, the well-known, perhaps old flame of Tira. They do self-govern. They do, in my mind at least, I don't know if it's been conveyed in the game, but they do make all the decisions about how does the town grow, things like that. So I think, again, we've already done some of this, however unconsciously, in building the town of Arden. And then the connector passage at the end of the topic area says, separate the communities from one another by means of substantial areas, the subculture boundary. Subdivide each community into 10 or 20 independent neighborhoods, each with a representative on the community council. Identifiable neighborhood. Provide a central place where people have a chance to come together. Eccentric nucleus. Promenade. And in this central place, provide a local town hall as a focal point for the community's political activity. Local town hall. So we have several branching things that we could go to here. So I think a promenade sounds good. That's section 31 in the book. As I envisioned Arden at the outset, there was a substantial green, a common area in the middle of the town, in the main area, where people get out and move around and see and be seen, uh, maybe a place for celebration, the little festival that they have after the heroes help defend against the bear lady and her small army of bandits. So we're going to go to section 31. And the intro here says, 
assume now that there is an urban area, subdivided into subcultures and communities, each with its boundaries, each subculture in the mosaic of subcultures, 8, and each community of 7,000, section 12, has a promenade as its backbone. And each promenade helps to form activity nodes, that's section 30, along its length by generating the flow of people which the activity nodes need in order to survive. So we're starting to see an interconnection between the town and then the places of public being out and about. The bold intro says each subculture needs a center for its public life, a place where you can go to see people and to be seen. Again, I don't see Arden as a town of 7,000. Maybe in working through this, my mind will change, but I, I see it maybe as 300, 400 people max. So I don't see a lot of variety in the culture, in the people that make it up. So I'm only envisioning a single promenade, a single green area. And the bold end of this section says, encourage the gradual formation of a promenade at the heart of every community, linking the main activity nodes, that's section 30, and placed centrally so that each point in the community is within 10 minutes walk of it. Put main points of attraction at the two ends to keep a constant movement up and down. This is really going to be the first part where I start drawing on the map. Like I said, I have an idea of a promontory that sticks out, and that promontory rises at its peak to maybe 30 feet above the rivers that flow beneath it. I'm going to draw the peak, and I've got the rivers. Actually, it's a river and then a stream that flows into the river. That stream is called the Rhyme Rill. And at the tip of the rock, that promontory that stands up above the rivers, is Chiswick's house, his little mayor's house and compound that's within the palisade. And then out in the town, I have the promenade, or the green area. So I'm just going to draw that as kind of an oval, and I'll number these. I guess I'll make this number one. What this section is telling me is, in order to get people to come out to it, there should be a point of attraction at both ends of the promenade. Let's put a well at one end. And then at the other, maybe we'll have a statue. I don't know what that statue is going to be. Let's see, they have the theme of the stag in this town. The crest of the town is a stag's head on a blue field. The inn is called the Great Stag Inn. Uh, the Iron Stag Delve is just to the north. So a lot of this deer imagery, a lot of this stag imagery is floating through the people's minds. So let's say that there's a sculpture of a great stag made out of Oh, let's say the local stone. Let's say the dwarves maybe crafted it and gave it to the town as a symbol of thanks for the trade between the two people. Uh, and so at the north end of this promenade, of this green area in the middle of the town proper, is a sculpture, a statue of a great stag. And then at the more southern end is the well, which I think leads us to access of water, which is a section within this book. But for now, we'll leave that alone. And so number one on the map represents the promenade. And then the final section of the promenade section says, no matter how large the promenade is, there must be enough people coming to it to make it dense with action. And this can be precisely calculated by the formula of pedestrian density. That's section 123. The promenade is mainly marked by concentrations of activity along its length. Activity nodes 30. Naturally, some of these will be open at night, nightlife, 33. And somewhere on the promenade, there will be a concentration of shops, 
Shopping Street, 32. It might also be appropriate to include Carnival, 58, and Dancing in the Street, 63, in very large promenades. The detailed physical character of the promenade is given by Pedestrian Street, 100, and Path Shape, 121. So I want to go to section 100 briefly. That's Pedestrian Street, and we'll see what is involved in a pedestrian street. Section 100, Pedestrian Street, says the earlier patterns, Promenade, 31, Shopping Street, 32, and Networks of Paths and Cars, 52, all call for dense pedestrian streets. Row Houses, 38, Housing Hill, 39, University as a Marketplace, 43, Market of Many Shops, 46, all do the same. And within the Building Complex, 95, Circulation Realms, 98, calls for the same. As you build a pedestrian street, make sure you place it so that it helps to generate a network of paths and cars, 52, raised walks, 55, and circulation realms, 98, in the town around it. The bold preface says the simple social intercourse created when people rub shoulders in public is one of the most essential kinds of social glue in society. So having places where people can get out and mingle in a public fashion is important to town life. The closing bold section says, Arrange buildings so that they form pedestrian streets with many entrances and open stairs directly from the upper stories to the street so that even movement between rooms is outdoors, not just movement between buildings. So what I'm getting a picture of is, even for multi-story buildings, there needs to be quick ways for people in different levels of houses to get out into the public area very quickly and not just for safety reasons like we see today with fire escapes and all that kind of thing but because it's important for people to be together so that's going to affect how the buildings in our town look and how they work and i'm getting the impression right now that uh, i won't be doing much drawing during this i'm mostly gathering notes so i will have a map eventually uh, but we'll work through this and uh I want to get that map done and posted as quickly as possible. The final closing paragraph of Pedestrian Street says, The street absolutely will not work unless its total area is small enough to be well filled by the pedestrians in it. Pedestrian Density 123 Make frequent entrances and open stairs along the street instead of building indoor corridors to bring the people out. And give these entrances a family resemblance so one sees them as a system. Family of Entrances, 102. Open Stairs, 158. Give people indoor and outdoor spaces which look on the street. Private Terrace on the street, 140. Street Windows, 164. Opening to the street, 165. Gallery Surround, 166. Six-foot Balcony, 167. And shape the street to make a space of it. Arcade, 119. Path Shape, 121. So there's a lot of stuff that they're advocating here to open out into public streets. But basically, the idea is, at least as these architects are advocating it, houses need to open out into public spaces to give people a chance to be together. And I'll tell you, in my experience, I have not made drawings of towns this way. I have not thought about it in this way. It's really neat. So I think I'll skip ahead a little bit. Uh, let's go to access of water. That's section number 25. Water is always precious. Among the special natural places covered by sacred sites, 24, we single out the ocean beaches, lakes and riverbanks because they are irreplaceable. Their maintenance and proper use require a special pattern. 
the bold section, people have a fundamental yearning for great bodies of water, but the very movement of the people toward the water can also destroy the water. The closing bold section, when natural bodies of water occur near human settlements, treat them with great respect. Always preserve a belt of common land immediately beside the water, and allow dense settlements to come right down to the water only at infrequent intervals along the water's edge. And then there's a little line drawing of a map from above. It shows a bunch of roads coming down to the water at right angles to the water. And so basically what they're saying is get people as close to the water as possible, but don't put them on the water because then stuff happens. Uh, sewage, trash, erosion, all that kind of stuff. And that leads to problems. So as you're designing your towns, try and keep your people up away from the water's edge immediately, although that's not always the case. Again, there's room for adjustments throughout all this. This is what this particular panel of architects was suggesting back in the late 70s. All things that I'm going to be taking into account here. The access to water section mentions sacred sites, which happens to be the section right before it. And because we have the Chapel of the Healing Hand there in Arden, I thought it would be worth reading that section here. In every region and every town, indeed in every neighborhood, there are special places which have come to symbolize the area and the people's roots there. These places may be natural beauties or historic landmarks left by ages past, but in some form they are essential. First bold section says people cannot maintain their spiritual roots and their connections to the past of the physical world they live in does not also sustain these roots. The closing bold section says whether the sacred sites are large or small, whether they are at the center of the towns and neighborhoods or in the deepest countryside, establish ordinances which will protect them absolutely so that our roots and the visible surroundings cannot be violated. So the sacred site here isn't talking about places of worship necessarily, but preserving the natural beauty, the appealing parts of the place to live so that they continue to be appealing. And the closing section says, give every sacred site a place or a sequence of places where people can relax, enjoy themselves, and feel the presence of the place. Quiet Backs, 59. Zen View, 134. Tree Places, 171. Garden Seat, 176. And above all, shield the approach to the site so that it can only be approached on foot and through a series of gateways and thresholds which reveal it gradually. Holy Ground, 66. Finally, I want to get into some of the house design that this book talks about. It's hard for me to tell from the summary of the language if this is referring to a cluster of buildings or a single building, but I'm going to go ahead and turn to 110, Main Entrance. And this starts by saying, You have a rough position for your building on the site. Site Repair, 104. South Facing Outdoors, 105. Wings of Light, 107. You also have an idea of the major circulation in the building complex and the lines of approach which lead toward the building. Circulation Realms, 98. Family of Entrances, 102. Now it is time to fix the entrance of the building. The leading bold section says placing the main entrance, or main entrances, is perhaps the single most important step you take during the evolution of a building plan. It goes through a bunch of detail about that, and then the closing bold section says place the main entrance of the building at a point where it can be seen immediately from the main avenues of approach and give it a bold, visible shape which stands out in front of the building. 
And then in closing, if possible, make the entrance one of a family or similar entrances so that they all stand out as visibly as possible within the street or building complex, family of entrances, 102. Build that part of the entrance which sticks out as a room large enough to be a pleasant, light, and beautiful place, entrance room, 130. And bring the path between the street and this entrance room through a series of transitions of light and level and view, entrance transition, 112. Make sure that the entrance has the proper relationship to parking, shielded parking, 97, car connection, 113. So, I mean, this gets super detailed. There's lots of things that you can take into account in designing cities, towns, and you can get really as as crazy as you want to get, which is why I wanted to start with a small town, giving us a lot less to work with. So again, I apologize for not doing the drawing in real time with this, but what I'm going to do after this recording is go ahead and take some time to draw out the map using the principles contained in the book. Hopefully I've given you enough to work with so that you understand how the book flows, how it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure story for designers. If you get to this part, then you have options to take you up in size or down in size, and then you're trying to tie it all together in a meaningful way, again, so that that pattern speaks through everything. Like I said, once I get this map complete, I'll share it through a link in our show notes. Uh, Through this process, I hope you got to see a few things. First, how a pattern language can be useful in helping to design parts of your world. How to use it practically by following through and reading the sections and then finding ways to apply it to your town design. And from the resulting new map of Arden, what can come from using this book to help guide the creative process. As I said earlier, we've been working through a pattern language, and I'll provide an Amazon link on the show notes to that text. At $38, the price isn't too bad. And it's even listed as a bestseller, which isn't too shabby for a book that's more than 40 years old. Also, don't forget to check out my buddy Pat and his Foot of the Mountain Adventures feed on Twitter and his Patreon page. Again, check the show notes for direct links. Did this episode help you in any way? Give us a shout on Twitter or Instagram at stackodice or by email at stack.o.dice at gmail.com. I would love to know if you've learned anything from our time together. And if you're using alternate approaches to world building that you've found highly effective, share them with us. We'd love to hear about them. I want Creation Corner episodes to serve as a two-way street because I have a lot to learn about this game and how to do it well and how to be a much better creator and DM. So take some time today to share your thoughts. Also, if you're enjoying our content and you haven't taken the time to rate and review us on iTunes, we'd love that. Taking a few minutes would mean the world to us and help to get us out there more. Thank you, as always, for your support in everything we do, stackers. Well, that's all the time I have. I hope you had fun, and I can't wait to hear what you do with this information or how you're using other information to help you with your own building. Be sure to be here with us again next time at Stack of Dice. <laughs>